This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all sorts here on this show. And this next one is a story about a bridge in Durham, North Carolina, that has captured the world's attention on YouTube. Today, Jesse brings us the story of the 11-foot, 8-inch high bridge. The 11-foot-8 bridge is a railroad trestle in Durham, North Carolina that people keep running into with their big trucks, buses, and RVs. Sometimes entire roofs of moving vans are removed, peeled and rolling back like a tin can. Big rigs are stuck under the thing. And despite many large warning signs and flashing lights, Warning drivers who dare to pass under its 11-foot-8 clearance. People just keep running into it. One day, Jurgen Hen started recording. The bridge is right outside my office. I started working in that building in 2002, and uh, every time a truck hits the bridge, we kind of notice because it's loud, usually. <laughs> and so over, over the years, and... You know, every, every few weeks we'd walk out there and check on the driver and, and kind of survey the mayhem. The trestle is over 100 years old and at the time it was built there were no standards for minimum clearance. On average, about once a month, the truck runs into the damn thing. In 2008, I was setting up a home security system and with, a, with you know, wireless cameras and decided that it would be kind of interesting to set up one of those cameras at the office to start filming the traffic and maybe catch one or two of these truck crashes to see what that actually looks like. I've never actually seen it happen in real life. As it happened, just a couple of weeks after I set up the camera, I caught the first crash and decided to put it on YouTube It became pretty popular right away, so clearly there was an interest for that kind of footage, so I kept recording. There was not much overhead, really. The North Carolina Railroad Company owns the trestle, but lifting it would cost millions of dollars, so they installed a crash beam. It reduces the impact of trucks hitting the trestle by slicing open the vehicle like a 46 Ford cutting through a DeLorean. They call it the can opener. The road can't be lowered because of sewer lines underneath, and there are warning signs for three blocks leading up to it. There's even a sensor that can detect a truck that won't fit. If your rig is too tall, it'll trigger a sequence of massive flashing lights that specifically tell the driver to exit. But still, people keep hitting it. Jurgen has hundreds of videos of people crashing into this thing and millions of views on YouTube. He even collects parts of the crash debris and sells it back to his fans. I credit my wife for that idea. I mean, I just clean up a little bit when we go down there, kind of pick up the pieces. I notice that they're kind of cool looking. You know, sometimes they're bent in spirals or, or other interesting shapes. So I started keeping the, the, the more interesting looking pieces in my office. And over the years, well, one box after another, I eventually hauled some of those boxes home. <laughs> and my wife said, honey, 
Um, let's do something with these boxes of truck pieces. How about I try to sell them? And I'm like, sure, honey, you try to sell them. Well, yeah, he was actually onto something and um, you know, took some nice pictures, named the pieces, and uh, started our online store where we sell t-shirts and crash art. That was that, that moniker was also right. <laughs> to call it crash art. Lucrative is probably not the word that comes to mind. Um, <laughs> I'm not about to quit my day job over this for sure. I, I would call it a self-sustaining hobby. Make enough money off the t-shirt sales and, and crash art. And I have a Patreon page now too to help sort of sustain the whole thing. Every couple years or so, get new cameras so I can capture good, good high-quality footage. Now, for the record, the actual clearance height of the 11-foot-8 bridge is 11-foot-10.8, which technically gives it 2.8 inches more than advertised. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And thanks for that story, Jesse. And people do everything in this country. They have all kinds of hobbies. Some people bowl. Some people play poker. Some people golf, knit. This guy, crash art. And as he said it, it's a self-sustaining hobby. And boy, that's better than most. Most of us have to pay for our hobbies. By the way, you can go to YouTube, and there's a video with somewhere over 7 million views of the ultimate montage of all the crashes that this gentleman has filmed over the years with his little homespun rigged camera that he just decided would capture all the crashes he'd never seen. Now he gets to see it. Now we all get to see it. And by the way, if you have quirky stories like this, passions, hobbies, or know people who do, send them our way. And that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. I'm trying to run down a guy who has a toaster museum. I'd seen an article about it somewhere. And if anybody knows, the wisdom of the crowds is great. I'd seen or read this story about a guy who'd collected toasters from the beginning of time and has turned his home and several others into this ultimate toaster museum. And that's right, toaster, T-O-A-S-T-E-R. And he's walking through it and talking about every single kind of toaster, the one piece of toast toaster, then the two piece of toast toaster, the ones that fold, the one that hold four. And he was just waxing poetic. And I can just imagine what his wife thinks of that toaster museum. Is it's tens of thousands of dollars in time, but if it keeps them off the streets, well, you know, what's the problem? Your hobbies, send them our way. A friend, somebody in town, ouramericannetwork.org. The story, the 11-foot, 8-inch bridge, actually, the 11-foot, 10-inch bridge, here on Our American Story.
is Our American Stories, and we love bringing you great commencement speeches. And they don't just happen in the summers. They happen all year round. People graduate in the winter. They graduate in the fall. And this one comes to us via a man you probably all know, at least his title, but you may not know his name. But you're going to know how he thinks and feels about life after this remarkable commencement speech. And the man is Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, John Roberts, who spoke to the graduating class at Cardigan Mountain School, a boarding school for boys grades 6 through 9. Wow, pretty heady speaker for a, for a middle school. And one of the kids in that graduating class was John Roberts' own son. The Chief Justice began his talk with these young men with something quite different than the usual platitudes that a commencement speaker delivers. From time to time in the years to come, I hope you will be treated unfairly so that you will come to know the value of justice. I hope that you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, but I hope you will be lonely from time to time so that you don't take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck again from time to time so that you will be conscious of the role of chance in life and understand that your success is not completely deserved and that the failure of others is not completely deserved either. And when you lose as you will from time to time, I hope every now and then your opponent will gloat over your failure. It is a way for you to understand the importance of sportsmanship. I hope you'll be ignored so you know the importance of listening to others. And I hope you will have just enough pain to learn compassion. Whether I wish these things or not, they're going to happen. And whether you benefit from them or not will depend upon your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. My goodness, that should probably play at every graduation speech. That may be the best advice. We do a lot of commencement addresses here, by the way, on Our American Stories. That may be one of the best short passages. But John Roberts wasn't finished. Now, commencement speakers are also expected to give some advice. They give grand advice, and they give some useful tips. The most common grand advice they give is for you to be yourself. It is an odd piece of advice to give people dressed identically. <laughs> but you should, you should be yourself. But you should understand what that means. Unless you are perfect, it does not mean don't make any changes. In a certain sense, you should not be yourself. You should try to become something better. People say be yourself because they want you to resist the impulse to conform to what others want you to be. But you can't be yourself if you don't learn who you are. And you can't learn who you are unless you think about it. The Greek philosopher Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And while just do it may be a good model for some things, it's not a good model when it's trying to figure out how to live your life that is before you. And one important clue to living a good life is to not to try to live the good life. The best way to lose the values that are central to who you are is frankly not to think about them at all. And well said. Chief Justice Roberts then went on to give these young men, these boys, some tips. 
Over the last couple of years, I've gotten to know many of you young men pretty well, and I know you are good guys. But you are also privileged young men. And if you weren't privileged when you came here, you're privileged now because you have been here. My advice is don't act like it. When you get to your new school, walk up and introduce yourself to the person who is raking the leaves, shoveling the snow, or emptying the trash. Learn their name and call them by their name during your time at the school. Another piece of advice, when you pass by people you don't recognize on the walks, smile, look them in the eye, and say hello. The worst thing that will happen is that you will become known as the young man who smiles and says hello. <laughs> and that is not a bad thing to start with. You've been in a school with just boys. Most of you will be going to a school with girls. I have no advice for you. <laughs> the, the last bit of advice I'll give you is very simple, but I think it could make a big difference in your life. Once a week, you should write a note to someone, not an email, a note on a piece of paper. It will take you exactly 10 minutes. Talk to an adult, let them tell you what a stamp is. You can put the stamp on the envelope, again, 10 minutes, once a week. I will help you right now. I will dictate to you the first note you should write. It will say, dear, fill in the name of a teacher at Cardigan Mountain School. Say, I have started at this new school. We are reading blank in English. Football or soccer practice is hard, but I'm enjoying it. Thank you for teaching me. Put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and send it. It will mean a great deal to people who, for reasons most of us cannot contemplate, have dedicated themselves to teaching middle school boys. <laughs> As I said, that will take you exactly 10 minutes a week. By the end of the school year, you will have sent notes to 40 people. 40 people will feel a little more special because you did. And they will think you are very special because of what you did. Now, what else is going to carry that dividend during your time at school? Chief Justice ended his speech with some song lyrics. I cited the uh, Greek philosopher Socrates earlier. These lyrics are from the great American philosopher, Bob Dylan. They're almost 50 years old. He wrote them for his son, Jesse, who he was missing while he was on tour. They list the hopes that a parent might have for a son and for a daughter. They're also good goals for a son and a daughter. The wishes are beautiful, they're timeless, they're universal. They're good and true except for one. It is the wish that gives the song its title and its refrain. That wish is a parent's lament. It's not a good wish. So these are the lyrics from Forever Young by Bob Dylan. May God bless you and keep you always. May your wishes all come true. May you always do for others and let others do for you. May you build a ladder to the stars and climb on every rung, and may you stay forever young. May you grow up to be righteous, 
May you grow up to be true. May you always know the truth and see the light surrounding you. May you always be courageous, stand upright and be strong, and may you stay forever young. May your hands always be busy. May your feet always be swift. May you have a strong foundation when the winds of changes shift. May your heart always be joyful. May your song always be sung. And may you stay forever young. Thank you. And there you have it, Chief Justice John Roberts, his commencement speech at the Cardigan Mountain School in New Hampshire. What a treat for those young men. John Roberts' story, because my goodness, he bore more of himself in this than any Supreme Court opinion. John Roberts' story, his son's story, Cardigan Mountain School's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you great stories about music, sports, history, work, marriage, and even public policy when it hits the pavement and affects you, the listener. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this next story. No one has more resilience or matches my practical, tactical brilliance. You want to fight for your land back? I my right hand man back. Get your right hand man back. No, you gotta get your right hand man back. I mean, you gotta put the button to the land, but the sooner the better to get your right hand man back. You might be asking, what the heck am I listening to? And if you've been listening closely, you might be asking, are they rapping about the founding fathers? Or you might be saying, 
That's one of my favorite songs. This song, Guns and Ships, was from the Broadway musical Hamilton. The surprising smash hit given that it was a musical about a founding father. Alexander Hamilton. And a musical that used the genre of rap to talk about a dead white founding father at that. But come on. Tell me you're at least not somewhat intrigued by this absurdity. That's got to be leading the guy on our $10 bill to be rolling in his grave. And one of the other Hamilton songs, A Farmer Refuted, shows Alexander Hamilton singing it. But truly, that's not how it went down in real life. Of course, Hamilton didn't sing publicly. Most of the Founding Fathers were just a wee bit too stiff for that. No, but that's not what I mean. Hamilton didn't identify himself publicly with the words, the words that the musical used to create this song. His own words. Hamilton wrote them, but didn't sign them under his name. He made himself anonymous, specifically... He called himself, quote-unquote, an anonymous friend. Now, you might consider himself a coward for not attaching his name to it, or you might not. The year was 1774, and Alexander Hamilton, then a 17-year-old orphan born out of wedlock on a tiny Caribbean island, found himself at King's College in New York City far from home. His childhood writing landed him there. Noted for its, quote, bombastic excesses with such verve and gusto that it moved the island community to come together and collect a fund to send the young chap to the big city. And the encouragement only encouraged him to write more. I am not thrown away. And how could he not? A revolution was underway. The Boston Massacre occurred four years earlier. Paul Revere and Samuel Adams, yes, that Samuel Adams that inspired the beer, helped inspire a riot against the British for taxing them without representation for them in the British Parliament. And the British shot and killed five Americans. Then, one year earlier, came the throwing of British tea into the ocean, the Boston Tea Party. And then that very year came the forming of a protest government to the British, the Continental Congress. And let's just say that every American wasn't gung-ho about it. The beginning, the majority of the people were against the revolution. That's Daniel Mark Epstein, the author of The Loyal Son, the book on the greatest microcosm of America's divisions, the division of Benjamin Franklin and his own son, William. His father visited him and he did everything he could to try to get him to come over to the side of the revolutionaries because that was his side and the family's side and William refused. And William ended up being the last royal governor to do the king's business in America. 
stubbornly refused to leave the governor's mansion and had to be taken away bodily and was put into the worst prison in America, the Litchfield Jail, where he was in solitary confinement with bread and water for 18 months and suffered terribly. Franklin said nothing had ever hurt him so bad in his entire life. Whatever side you claimed, you were staking a claim to, endangering your life. Out of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence who declared, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor on behalf of this cause, nine of them did lose their lives, 17 of them lost their fortunes, making it over a third of them who lost the first two, but none of them lost the third, their sacred honor. This reality is why one third of Americans didn't take a side in 1776. They were just hoping to survive. And according to Brad Smith, the chairman of the Center for Competitive Politics, it likely was just one of the reasons, a very understandable one, why the 17-year-old Hamilton and many of the founding fathers wrote anonymously. But there were other reasons, too. Hamilton's very first published writing was a piece that he published under the title A Friend of America, and he was responding to arguments made by various loyalist preachers. Loyal to the British crown. In particular, Episcopalian Bishop Samuel Seabury, although he didn't know it was Samuel Seabury because Seabury himself used a pseudonym. He used the name A Farmer. So Hamilton responded with this letter called A Friend of America, and then Seabury, still anonymously, they didn't know who, the two of them didn't know who they were talking to. Seabury responded, and Hamilton then published this paper called A Farmer Refuted, which he published under the name A Sincere Friend of America. Apparently he thought a friend of America wasn't enough. So that's the history of it. And it was very common in those days for people to write under pseudonyms or to publish anonymously for a number of reasons, including that they wanted to not necessarily have their political disagreements overflow into the social areas where they may interact or business where they may interact. They wanted to sometimes not have their you know, harsh, plain language said to one another interfere with their ability to reach compromises on other political matters. And, and above all, there was sort of a concept that readers should look at the arguments involved and that by publishing things under pseudonyms or anonymously, you forced people to deal with the arguments rather than to attack the messenger, rather than to attack the speaker. There's a good chance that the United States would not exist were it not for anonymous speech. I think the, the role of Thomas Paine's writings in particular, Common Sense and then The Crisis, were very, very important. And you wouldn't have wanted to publish those under your own name in, in that time because you would have risked perhaps your own death. And great job on that, Alex, and what a piece of history. And by the way, it's not just speech. People's donations to causes, well, those are private matters. And we're going to be getting into the NAACP in the state of Alabama. Because there were people in Alabama, many white people who supported the cause of desegregation. 
and they gave to the NAACP. And at a certain point in time, the state of Alabama came in to the NAACP and said, we want those names. And we know why the state wanted those names. They wanted to out those people, have the Klan deter those people from doing the right thing. There's a history of anonymous speech, anonymous donations, and my goodness, the ultimate anonymous act, the vote. Anonymous speech, Alexander's anonymous speech, the Federalist Papers themselves, folks, written under anonymous names by three great Americans. More on this subject, it's a big one, here on Our American Stories. American stories and we talk about everything here on this show and history is one of our favorite subjects and all of our history segments are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College where you can go to study all the things that matter in life all the things that are beautiful in life and if you can't get to Hillsdale Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses go to hillsdale.edu that's hillsdale.edu And on this day in history in 1932, Amelia Earhart was the first woman to make a solo transatlantic flight. Take it away, Faith. From a young age, Amelia Earhart had a sense of adventure. Her and her younger sister Grace would run around and play outside wearing bloomers, attire not normal for nice little girls. Earhart went against the grain of traditional gender roles. She played basketball, took an auto repair course, and briefly attended college. And in December 1920, Earhart took her first airplane ride in California with famed World War I pilot Frank Hawks. From then on, she was hooked. Here is history curator Dorothy Cochrane. From the time Amelia was young, she knew that she wanted to do something different. She became enamored with aviation and set her sights on that. Amelia Earhart learned to fly from Netta Snook, one of the rare female instructors of the era. She took a number of odd jobs just to be able to afford her flight lessons. And she drove trucks and she was a photographer. Shortly after taking her first flights, she began record setting. Amelia had many interests prior to her aviation accomplishments. She had been a pre-med student, nurse's aide during the outbreak of the Spanish flu, telephone operator, truck driver, social worker, and writer. But she loved aviation, and when she was 25, she bought her first airplane in 1922. That year, she set a woman's altitude record, the first woman to fly above 14,000 feet. As her fame grew, she was soon dubbed Lady Lindy, after Charles Lindbergh, known as Lucky Lindy. 
After Charles Lindbergh's solo flight across the Atlantic in 1927, pilot Amy Guest expressed interest in being the first woman to fly or be flown across the Atlantic Ocean. After deciding that the trip was too perilous for her to undertake, she offered to sponsor the project, suggesting that they find another girl with the right image. While at work one afternoon in April 1928, Earhart got a phone call from Captain Hilton H. Rayleigh, who asked her, Would you like to fly the Atlantic? On June 17, 1928, Earhart accompanied the pilot Wilmer Stoltz and co-pilot and mechanic Louis Gordon on the flight. Nominally, as a passenger, but with the added duty of keeping the flight log. Stoltz did all the flying. Had to. I was just baggage. Like a sack of potatoes, Earhart said. Maybe someday, I'll try it alone. She was inspired. Earhart consistently worked to promote opportunities for women in aviation. In 1929, after placing third in the All-Women's Air Derby, the first transcontinental air race for women, Earhart helped to form the 99s, an international organization for the advancement of female pilots, which still exists to this day. As of 2018, there were 155 99 chapters across the globe. In five years, she had accomplished a lot. The great solo transatlantic flight still called to her. And on May 20th, 1932, Amelia Earhart climbed into her single-engine Lockheed Vega 5B. Taking off from Harbor Grace, Newfoundland, she was attempting to be the first woman to make the flight. Her plan was to fly into Paris. However, due to some technical and weather complications, things changed. Here is Amelia Earhart recounting her trip. I took off the famous Harbor Grace runway at dusk, about 7.30, I believe. I flew for a couple of hours while sunset uh, lasted, and then two more hours as the moon came up over a bank of clouds. I had fair weather for four hours. Then I ran into a storm which was one of the most severe I have ever been in. I milled around in the storm for probably an hour and with difficulty kept my course. I had been troubled with my exhaust manifold burning through all night. A weld broke shortly after I left Harbor Grace and I could see the damage increasing as the night wore on. I found specific thunderstorms probably three or four hundred miles off the coast of Ireland. I believe I saw land first about the middle. I decided to come down anyway in the best available pasture. I got down without any trouble and taxied to the front door of a surprised farmer's cottage. After receiving a real Irish welcome, I took a Paramount plane to London and there received a real English welcome. In just under 15 hours, and about 2,000 miles later, she landed north of Derry, Northern Ireland. She had made history. After her great Irish welcome, she was off to London. I've done it. 
Those were Lady Lindy's words when she got out of her machine in the field near the little village of Calmore, and all the villagers cheered her. Isn't she amazing? She doesn't look as though she's just battled with the elements for 2,000 miles in one of the most wonderful flights ever made. After staying the first night in Londonderry, she flew on as a passenger next day to London. At Hanworth, the American ambassador is present to greet her, still in her flying kit, since she carried no change of clothing and had only $20 in her pocket. And now, from the American embassy where she is staying, she emerges on the morrow to go shopping and to provide herself with feminine garments to replace the masculine attire in which she made her historic flight. Even after such a great feat, people were still concerned with her not-so-feminine appearance. But that did not downplay the outstanding accomplishment of this solo transatlantic flight. Her welcome home to New York was the stuff of celebrities. All New York turned up to greet her. Mayor Walker honored and welcomed her. You remember that some five years before you took off, when Colonel Lindbergh made his solo flight across the Atlantic, and coined the aeronautical we, that it remained of the masculine gender for some five years thereafter until you took off. And it seems to me as if you have at last cleaned up that aeronautical we and taken the sex out of it. <laughs> Ms. Earhart, you are truly and indeed welcome in the city of New York. She had taken the sex out of the accomplishment. It was now something anyone could do. As the first woman to fly solo nonstop across the Atlantic, Earhart received the Distinguished Flying Cross from Congress, which is a military decoration awarded for heroism or extraordinary achievement while participating in an aerial flight. She also received the Cross of Knight of the Legion of Honor from the French government and the Gold Medal of the National Geographic Society from President Herbert Hoover. It gives me a very great deal of pleasure to present you with this rarely conferred medal. The whole of America is proud of you and your performance. I do thank you sincerely. I fear my exploit was not worth so great an honor. Amelia Earhart, as humble as ever. Her journey did not end there. In fact, later that year, she became the first woman to fly across the U.S., starting in Los Angeles, California, and landing in Newark, New Jersey. It took me about 19 hours and a few minutes to uh, make the trip. I wish I could have done it faster. Never satisfied and always competing against herself, Amelia Earhart had flown her way into history. I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Faith, and what a story. My goodness, the accomplishments, the distinguished flying cross, and the first woman to ever get it, and she got that from Congress. And when she got an award from the President of the United States, said, I feel my exploit was not worthy of such an honor. And when you listen to her, and that was her. We love doing that, bringing in the actual voices of people. I particularly love those old audio reels because it's just, well, it's not perfect audio, but my goodness, who cares? It's real. And she was the first to fly across the United States as well, 19 hours and a few minutes. 
Now, when asked about that accomplishment, she said, I wish I would have done it faster. And always the competitor, a deep competitive zeal in nature. On July 2nd, 1937, at the age of 39, Amelia Earhart took off for what would be her last flight. And the day of her death, well, it's unknown. No one will ever know. Amelia Earhart's life, and on this day in history in 1932, she was the first woman to make a solo transatlantic flight. All of that, her story, this amazing risk-taking story, adventurer's story, as always brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College here on Our American Stories. This place houses a security system that rivals most nuclear missile silos. First, we have to get within the casino cages, which anybody will tell you takes more than a smile. Next, through these doors, each of which requires a different six-digit code changed every 12 hours. Past those lies the elevator. This is where it gets tricky. The elevator won't move without authorized fingerprint identification. Which we can't fake. And vocal confirmation from both the security system within the Bellagio and the vault below. Which we won't get. Furthermore, the elevator shaft is rigged with motion detectors. Meaning if we were to manually override the lift, the shaft's exit would lock down automatically and we'd be trapped. Now once we get down the shaft though, then it's a piece of cake. Just two more guards with Uzis and the most elaborate vault door ever conceived by man. And you're listening to George Clooney and the boys plotting their caper. And that's Ocean's Eleven, the remake of the great, well... Rat Pack movie in the 50s. And by the way, Americans love movies about heists. The Italian Job, Goldfinger, the best James Bond movie about a big heist. And, of course, the scenes in Goodfellas about that epic Lufthansa heist in JFK. And what happened after it really anchors the entire movie. And, well, we're talking about stolen things here in this segment And that brings us to Nate Scott, who's written for USA Today, Fox News. He's at SB Nation now. But this is his own story and a friend's story about a stolen wallet. This is a story about one of my best friends, Riley Flaherty. Riley recently lost his wallet. It's a bummer, but it happens. at a Wilco concert at King's Theater in Brooklyn, and after the show, he took an Uber back home to Manhattan. And as soon as he got home, he realized he didn't have his wallet. Riley had a trip the next morning. He really wanted the thing. So he had the driver take him all the way back. He searched the theater, but nothing. Now it's three in the morning, and Riley, dejected, heads back to Manhattan. He has some cash lying around, so he's able to go on the trip. But his wallet's gone. And so he does what you do when you lose a wallet. He cancels his credit cards. He actually was waiting on a new driver's license, so he got one of those. 
and he bought a new wallet. End of story. Or so you'd think. Because after that, a miracle happened. Well, a sort of miracle. A very New York miracle. Two weeks after he lost his wallet, Riley received a plain white envelope in the mail. His name was written in shaky handwriting on it. And inside was his license, his credit cards, and a note. The note read, Dear Riley Flaherty, I found your wallet, and your driver's license had your address, so here's your credit cards and other important stuff. I kept the cash because I needed weed. The metro card because, well, the fare's 275 now. And the wallet because it's kind of cool. Enjoy the rest of your day. Toodles. Anonymous. I've never been so conflicted about a nice gesture, Riley told me. The cash, gone. The wallet, gone. The metro card, gone. But two weeks later, returned in a plain white envelope, a driver's license, and his credit cards. I had already gone to get a new license, and had already gotten all my cards replaced, said Riley. So basically, it was useless to me. He did have this story, though, and no one can take that away from him. And that's so true, and thank you, Nate. And thank you, Riley, for sharing that sort of humiliating story. It's happened to us all. And uh, I don't tell a lot of stories about myself, but I had a, I had something stolen. By the way, we'd love to hear the things from you that got stolen, the most precious things, the stupidest things. But for me, it was a car. It was my first car. And it wasn't just any car. It was a car I'd wanted ever since I'd seen Steve McQueen fire up the Mustang Fastback, the 1968 Mustang Fastback, in the greatest at that time car chase ever seen in movie history. And again, the movie was Bullet. And check it out. It's still, to this day, as good a car chase as you can see and as gripping. And it was a GT2 plus 2, the one in the movie, and he was chasing a Dodge Charger through the streets of San Francisco, uphills, downhills. It was just fantastic. And McQueen, of course, drove his own car. Uh, McQueen loved speed and ultimately loved racing cars. And so what did I do? Well, like lots of kids, we saw that movie, great product placement by Ford, if it was. And I wanted that car, and so I saved for it, and I got parts for it. And it was many years later, um, almost two decades later that I was trying to assemble my own version of that bullet car. And not, well, not exactly like it. I couldn't afford it, but something close. And it had the V8, the 289 cubic inch V8. It had the fancy spoked wheels. It had the pony interior. It even had factory air conditioning, which was a drag and a real pain to get. Well, I took that old Mustang Fastback down to Georgetown from New Jersey. And Georgetown is in Washington, D.C., my buddies were there, and I wanted to show off the new car. It was finally ready to go. A little road trip down the New Jersey Turnpike, the Delaware Turnpike. Straight around 495, around the Capitol. Right down to M Street in front of Mr. Smith's. It was a rainy night. It was November. And my friends were in the front. I could see them in the front of the bar, so I just left that car running. And I went inside, and it was no more than a minute. And I came out, and that old car was gone. Long gone. And I cried. I mean, I cried. And then I screamed. And then I called the cops. And let's just say Washington, D.C. at the time, a call for 1968 Mustang Fastback redone 
Well, that was a laugher when I told those guys what I'd done. And then the problem? Well, telling my dad. And, well, you couldn't lie to my dad. He was one of those old, well, sort of military types who you couldn't lie to. And I finally just told him what had happened. And uh, he said, good luck with uh, your transportation for the next couple of years. And that was it. I walked a lot. And I learned a lesson. Don't leave a car running with the keys in it on a crowded city street. <laughs> Pretty dumb, huh? My theft story. Nate Scott's story. Here on Our American Stories. And you can go to Our American Network to hear all that we do. OurAmericanNetwork.org That's OurAmericanNetwork.org seems like every week it's a bowl game. Probably the, the best player to play in SEC ever. He literally dominated games. Gotta be Walker. Touchdown. Walker. Touchdown. Walker still going. Can you believe it? He's running over people. Oh, you Herschel Walker. A lot of guys can run through people, but they run through people and then just completely leave everybody behind them. Herschel breaks a tackle to the 45 40. There goes Herschel. I think Herschel's the greatest. That's, that's ever been. My God almighty, he ran right through two men. incredible. I transformed into a superhero character, like a Superman, that things just don't hurt him no more, and I can do almost anything. And we return to Our American Stories, and you were just listening to a terrific montage that included sportscasters, sports fans, experts, and they were talking about the great Herschel Walker. And if you're over 30... You most certainly know who he is if you're any kind of sports fan. And even if you're under 30, if you're a real diehard sports fan and you actually study up on stars that were around before you. And I, as a young guy, always knew the young boxers and the the, the, the boxers in the 50s and the 60s and the basketball players before my time. So Herschel Walker is, well, he's a legend and a name everyone knows. And we're about to tell his story because his story is so relatable. It's so universal. And it's beautiful. And you're going to hear from Herschel Walker. Really raw. And in a way, you've probably never heard many athletes talk about their own lives. Well, in such an intelligible and simple and straightforward way. But before we do that, a bit about his life. He was born in Augusta, Georgia in 1962 and grew up outside of Wrightsville, Georgia. And Wrightsville is a a tiny town in central Georgia. When he was growing up, it had 2,000 folks. And now, well, it's exploded to 3,600. And for the first 11 years of his life, Walker showed little interest in sports. He preferred reading books and writing poetry. Not exactly general fare for star NFL players. At age 12, however, he began a crash exercise program 
after getting beat up by a schoolyard bully. Herschel's philosophy and work ethic made him one of the most phenomenal success stories in sports history. An unathletic child by his own account, Herschel Walker went on to set all-time football records at every level of play, from high school to the pros, and along the way, he maintained a high grade point average and the unshakable self-respect first instilled in him by his parents. He earned the Heisman Trophy in his junior year at the University of Georgia. The College Football Hall of Fame rated him as one of the two greatest players in the history of the college game, second only to the legendary Red Grange. In 1988, while a member of the Dallas Cowboys, Herschel actually danced with the Fort Worth Ballet. And as an active NFL player, Walker competed in the 1992 Winter Olympics as a member of the United States bobsled team. Talk about some range. He's a fifth-degree black belt in Taekwondo and holds a perfect professional mixed martial arts record in strike forces heavyweight division of 2-0. He ranks in the NFL's top 10 of all time for most all-purpose yards, and he was a two-time pro bowler. Without any further ado, let's hear from the man himself in this raw interview he conducted with the Academy of Achievement. Here is Herschel Walker. Well, growing up, I was, uh, I was not that athletic, and uh, I had a speech impediment. So to be a uh, person that was not athletic, having a speech impediment, I had a lot of kids that made fun of me. Uh, you know, I had a lot of teachers that didn't take the time out to uh, help me to overcome my shortcomings. So I had uh, parents that uh, told me, you're not going to use that as, that as an excuse. You're not going to use that as an excuse to uh, at least try hard and to get good grades or to do whatever. You know, you're just going to have to work on your own. And, you know, I, I sit in the mirror day after day, uh, you know, night after night, saying she sells seashells by the seashore and, you know, all those tongue twisters and this and that. And I overcame the speech impediment. And, uh, you know, when I became valedictorian in my class my senior year, all those teachers that didn't want to take the time out to uh, help me out then decided they wanted to take the credit for it. But, uh, you know, I had uh, loving parents that uh, no matter what, they were not going to let me use excuses for anything. And, you know, not being able to score touchdowns, you know, people are not going to be your friend. Not being able to run or shoot a basket, people are not going to be your friend. So I had a coach that said, Hershey, if you believe in yourself, you know, you go out and uh, work hard, you know, do some push-ups, sit-ups, and this and that. And I started doing those things. His name was Tom Jordan. And it was funny, I had two older brothers who uh, it was very athletic. I mean, Coach Jordan saw me and how clumsy and, uh, you know, I couldn't run, couldn't do anything. He just said to himself, you know, if his two brothers are great at sports, Hersher got to have something. He's got to be good at something. So. He used to go come pick me up after Sunday school, after church, and on Saturdays, and make me go out to this track. And he work out with me, he played with me, and he made me feel good about myself. And he said, "Okay, you're gonna do your homework here. You've got to do this here." And that, he was just like my my parents, and he believed in me. And uh, he's he you know he the teacher that uh, 
And they say, what teacher you have? And I say, a coach. And most people say, oh, geez, that's just sports. But that's not. It's, it's that he was someone that was the role model, was the teacher in my life. He's a big fisherman. It's funny because, you know, uh, and he always wanted a bass boat. And growing up in Wrightsville, Georgia, you know, I don't have any money. I can barely rub two nickels together. And then uh, becoming a professional foot, a football player, I got him a bass boat. And, you know, that's... And I love that because, you know, for what he did for me, to put me in the position I'm in right now, you know, a bass boat isn't enough. You know, he's, uh, he means a great deal to me. My parents didn't have a lot of money. My high school didn't have a lot of money to afford a lot of the expensive weights and, you know, all this stuff. And I uh, didn't use that as an excuse. I started doing push-ups and sit-ups during, com during commercials as, as I was watching TV and started doing about, you know, sometimes 2,000 push-ups, 3,000 sit-ups, uh, 1,500 pull-ups, uh, dips or, you know, 1,000 dips and, you know, different things like that. And I started creating different hand positions for all that. And then I learned that that could work you out. And in the olden days, that's what people used to do. My sister, she was, uh, she's a year, a little bit over a year older. And she was fast and, you know, like I was that chubby kid. and. She was always beat me. She always beat me, and, and I just felt that you know I couldn't see a girl beating me all the time. And I said, I gotta beat her. I gotta beat her. And I just trained and trained, and you know every time I went up to uh, race her, she beat me. Every time I went up, she beat me. And, you know after you've been beat over ten times, sometimes people got a tendency of quitting. And I said, No, I'm not gonna quit. I'm not gonna quit. And I kept doing it until I got where I could beat her. And what was so strange about it? is I beat her, the first race that I ever beat, I barely beat her. But I think that, and that like was, that was the springboard. You know, once I saw that I can do it, I said, uh-oh, now it's a little different, now I'm ready. And I think that's the way the mind works. It's so strange, because you can take two little dogs. One could be a small dog, the other is a small puppy, but he's gonna grow up to be this huge 160-pound dog. And you can take this one, 30-pound little dog that is an adult at the time. And this big dog, as he grow up, he's been dominated by this little dog. So he always grows up thinking this little dog could beat him. So he can get to his full size of 160 pounds. This little dog still, you know, is only like 30 pounds, but he still think, the big dog still think the little dog can beat him, so he's afraid of him because he don't know any better. And I said, sometimes that's the way the mind is, is if you continually to say, you can't do it, you're not going to do it. But sooner or later, you got to make that, you know, like I said, you got to swing that bat because you never know if you're going to hit a home run. And Walker is so right. If you don't swing the bat, you can't make contact. And heck, you're never going to hit a home run, let alone a single. And if you notice here, there was little room for excuse making in the Walker family. And my goodness, if there's one thing we emphasize here on this show, it's grit. It's perseverance. And victimology just doesn't, well, it doesn't work well for anybody. It just doesn't end well. And again, he had stuttering issues. He wasn't a particularly good athlete. It didn't come naturally to him. But look what his mind and his will and his perseverance accomplished. Well, we're going to get to a lot more of that. And thanks to the Academy of Achievement for providing this source audio. When we come back, you're going to continue to hear a remarkable voice from the sports world. Herschel Walker. His story when we continue here on Our American Stories. 
He's a freak of nature. Somebody like him comes around once every 50, 60 years. I wish they would see the real person in me, and one day they would know I'm not here for the show. Who I am, what I do, is only the reaction I get from you. That they cannot see, because all they see is the outside of me. And we return to the story of Herschel Walker, and we continue to play some of that montage material because if you'd ever seen Herschel Walker play, you saw one fierce competitor. And I mean the energy coming out of him. It was just something to behold. And I had the opportunity to meet him twice, and he was just the quietest, mildest-mannered person. It was just remarkable, that dichotomy. But let's return to his story, his own story, in his own words. When I was in the seventh grade, I think, they have this race at the end of the school year, like a mile run. So about three weeks before the race, my father was a farmer. So he plowed this field, and I got out, went into training with my younger brother. For three weeks, I trained. Finally, the day came to, for the race, and I, uh, I got up there with this guy, Willie Jenkins. I remember his name, and this other guy, uh, Wells who uh, everybody predicted they were going to win the race. They were the most athletic kids in my class. And I got up there right with them to run this race, and we started running. And I was feeling good. I was feeling great. I was in shape. No one knew I was been, I'd been uh, training except my younger brother. About the second lap, something said, Herschel, you're not going to win. I'm running, and I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute. Third lap, something said, Herschel, you're not going to win. And I'm up front. There's only like, I'm in the second place. I'm right up front. I'm feeling good. I'm not even tired. And going into the last laps, I'm saying, Herschel, you're not going to win. You're not going to win this race. You better get out of it. You better get out of it. And I'm like in second, whereas I probably could have won it if I had kept running. And uh, I said, okay, what am I going to do? Uh, I'm going to pretend like I pulled a muscle. So on the last curve, I walked off the field and grabbed my hamstring as, at a, in the seventh grade and pretend like I hurt my leg. And uh, Willie Jenkins ended up winning his race, and all day it bothered me. And when I remember going home, getting off the school bus, my younger brother ran up to me and said, how did it, how did it go, how did it go? And I, and I said, well, I, I hurt my leg. And I lied about it. And he said, oh, you know, you'll get them next time. You know, and that made me feel so bad because, uh, you know, you don't, I lied and then, you know, and I think the thing is I didn't try. And I said then no matter whatever happened in my life from then on, I don't care what happened, I'm gonna give it everything I got. And it's funny because, you know, I see so many people today that don't wanna try. And I say, I don't care what I ever do. I never give up at, at anything anymore. I don't care what it is. You'll never see me give up. Oh, jeez. I can't believe it. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I think people, it's so funny because uh, people think I'm crazy because I do so many crazy things, but I think because of that race in my life, you know, I'm, I'm what you call the renegade of uh, professional sports. You know, I've done everything. I've done bobsled, karate, dance, it's just about anything. Now, I'm not going to say I'm the best at it, but I guarantee you I give most people to run for their money at just about everything. I didn't have uh, role models like football players in my life when I was growing up, you know, as a uh, little kid. But 
what I did see was my mother and father getting up early in the morning, going to work, and coming back late in the afternoon, and that they never complained about it. And what I did see is see my mother saying, you know, I love God, and my father loving God, and so they put that love on me, and they threw all that on me to love God. And so my, my role models in life have been my parents because they never complained about anything they ever done. That was seven kids. And whenever a child in the house, a kid in the house went off to work, my parents made him be sure of himself that when he went, he was going to work. He was not going there to clown around. He was not going there just to pass time away. He was going to work. And he was not going to just try to make a dollar by sitting down. He was going to give everything he's got. And I think because of that, that's why I'm always going to give everything I got, because God is going to be proud of you then. You know, there's no such word in my family as lazy. You know, if you're not going to show up and uh, dance at the party, don't go. It's called a party, so you got to have fun. And because I don't drink, I reckon I got to dance. I grew up in the South. Uh, my senior year was a very big uh, racial uh, detention. You know, in my hometown, that was a very big deal. And, you know, it's, it's tough, but you knowing who you are and you knowing that, you know, whites know better than you are, Herschel. You're no better than they are. And I think the biggest thing that helped me to overcome is when it's all said and done, God is not going to have a list and say, oh, geez, you're white, so you're going in, you're black, you're not, or you're black, you're coming in, and you're white, you're not. I was going to church one Sunday, and I didn't want to go. I was tired of going to church and stuff, and I hid my shoes. I didn't want to go. And uh, it's funny because uh, I went to my mother, and she said, oh, you ready to go to church? And I said, no, I, I can't go. She said, why? I said, you know, I don't have any shoes. You know, you only have one pair of Sunday sh shoes. And I said, I don't have any shoes to go. And she said, no, you can come on and go. I said, I don't have any shoes. She said, you know, God don't care how you look. And I thought about it, and, you know, that's true. God don't care how you look, and that's what he don't care whether you're white, black, as long as you've been a good person, you believe in him. And I said, that's the key, and we always, I think we're, we're always putting category. we got to put someone in a category. Okay, he's this, he's that, he's this. You know, that's, that doesn't matter, as long as he can do the job. You know, I think that's what counts. You know, my father is, is so strange because my father had six sisters. He was the only boy. And when he was 12, his father was killed. So he took the responsibility to raise his six sisters. Never complained, never said anything about it. And I say, you know, that's my role model in life. And it's strange because I never said anything to him about it. And uh, I was in Innsbruck, Austria one, one time, you know, a long way away from home. And, I started thinking, I said, you know, I always tell my mother I love her, but I never told my father that. And I said, you know, it's so funny because uh, he means so much to me in my life. And I just never say that. I happened to call him up. It took me a couple of days to get him because of the time difference. But when I called him up, I, uh, I told him. And my mother said, you don't know what that really meant to him. And those are people that I look up to in life that have given me this. And I think if I go out in life now and do something crazy, I embarrass them. I don't care about embarrassing myself, but to embarrass people that I love or to embarrass people that I've drawn so much from, I think it destroy me worse than anything. Well, coming from a small town, it's, uh, 
It was tough really to dream big, you know. My biggest dream, you know, I grew up in a small town in Georgia. My biggest dream was one day to be able to go to Atlanta, Georgia. You know, to be able to go to Atlanta, which was, which Atlanta was uh, about two hours, 45 minutes from my home. So, you know, the dream about going to Atlanta was it, you know. And so me, I think growing up, I started developing confidence in what I felt. My parents helped me to believe in myself. I wasn't the best looking guy. I was not the best athlete in the world, but they made me feel good about myself. Hershel, you are somebody. You know, whether you're black, white, doesn't matter. You are a person. And God, and God loves you. So that made me feel good. So I was able to feel good about myself growing up in a small town. And then it gave me those real hard work ethics. You know, that's what we, use, we need today because nothing is going to come to you easy. We got too much of a competitive world for anything to come easy to you. People competing in everything. It doesn't matter what it is. Football, that's just athletics. But in the business world, you know, doing everything, people are competing. So you got to get those very good work, work ethics. And I think that helped me to develop good work ethics in a small town. And my goodness, what words and what wisdom. Something we can apply to all of our lives and we need more of this kind of message going out to the world right now as people are trying to divide themselves by so many categories. And here's Herschel Walker. Well, just getting it down to one thing. Can you show up and can you do the job? Can you do the work? When we come back, more of Herschel Walker's story here on Our American Stories. And we return to Herschel Walker's story in his own words. And my goodness, you're hearing a unique American voice. I got to tell you, there's a bit of a philosopher in this man. And every human being in this country, everyone should hear this man's story. And that's what we do here in Our American Stories, bring you these stories unfiltered. So let's return to Herschel Walker's story in his own words. I was a little different. I still say I'm a little different because I, my dreams are, you know, success to me is not having the most money or having the biggest car or the biggest house. Success is just being happy. And I try so many different things. I do a lot of different things because I, I think God has helped me to love myself. And God, I know who God is, and I love God. So I think growing up as a kid, you know, I, I used to write all the time. I was always by myself. And it's not that I wanted to be by myself, but we lived in a small town. We lived out in the country. There was no one around. So I was not going to use excuses and, and you know, one or away, away from home, go over someone else. I sit at home. I wrote uh, whatever I can get my hands on. I read. I, I thought knowledge, and I still think today knowledge is one of the key. Because when you're able to understand Life is a lot more beautiful then. And when you're able to uh, hear another language and understand it, it's a little bit beautiful than just hearing it. When you're able to see a uh, painting up on the wall and understand what you're looking at, it's a little bit more beautiful. And, and I, so I used to like just read anything. I remember uh, getting a Sears catalog and reading about how this was done and where and 
stuff and just thinking, you know, I don't know how in the, why in the world I'm reading about women dresses, how to make women dresses. I don't think I'm ever going to become that. But, you know, just reading things, you know, I was just intrigued by it. The reason why, you know, you have some people get up and they tell you their life story, how they are uh, sort of like a boxer always uh, comes out and you say, well, I was never a tough guy and this guy stole my bike like the Muhammad Ali. So I went into boxing and next thing you know, I'm the heavyweight champion. You know, anyone can do that. I don't mean anyone can do it, but anyone can do like one of those stories. But no one can die and come back alive again. You know, you, it hasn't been done yet. There's only one person that has, has done something like that. So that inspired me. I said, hey, this guy's my hero. If he can do that, you know, I'm going to believe in this guy here. And to see him <clears throat> who can help the blind to see, you know, people that are sick, he can cure them. So he became a guy that I looked up to. So I used to read anything, and whenever my parents or anyone started talking about, you know, religion or about God, you know, I'd you know, ease over there and listen a little bit because I said, that's knowledge. And, you know, I'm not a big guy that's going to try to throw religion on anyone because that person has to be accountable for himself. And I think that's what we have to do in a society today is be accountable for yourself. I think we have the tendency of always want to live, in, want to live someone else's life. We want to tell that person what to do, how to act, but yet we don't know how to act. And I think first, if we learn to act, Maybe we can help that other person. Run the race against yourself and not the guy in the other lane. And the reason I say that is as long as you give it 110%, you're going to succeed. But as long as you're trying to beat the guy over there, you're worried about him. You're not worrying about how you're going to perform. But believe in yourself because I think that's the very big key and to work hard. To dream, it takes work. To have a nightmare, it takes nothing. And I think if you're going to dream, you've got to be willing to work because then it can be possible. If you're going to have a nightmare, you don't have to do anything but just hide in the closet. And I, I, I said dreams are possible through a lot of hard work. Ever since I was a little boy, I wanted to be in the FBI. So as I grew up, that's, that was my dream. That's all I wanted to do. And when I got a chance to go to college, I was going to my criminal justice degree, and I wanted to go to law school and go into the FBI. I was playing football, and I never really thought it was going to be a reality until my first day I was out on the football field and I realized then that I was going to play football and not have a chance to really go into the FBI until late in my career. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't uh, regret it. I think it, it's been a, a blessing for me. Being an athlete is being a competitor, not on the football field but in life. And you got to be able to compete in the classroom because you can always be president when you're 60. But when you turn 30, they're going to say you're too old for football. So knowledge can take you a long ways. Being an athlete can only take you a short little sprint. And you want to study hard because you always got something. Like I said, it is so great to be able to understand, you know, something. To sit down with the president and understand what's happening, then to go sit out there on the street with anyone still understand that is that is beautiful to do that just to go out and run a touchdown is only great for that time the next week if you don't do it they don't want you around no more
My most exciting achievement is being on the Olympic team in bobsledding. Uh, and one reason I say that is because, uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of controversy going on whether I should have the chance to compete on the Olympic team and this and that. And I say, you know, my problem with that is when you try for an Olympic team, I think they want they ask for the very best the United States has to offer. And if there's guys that's been practicing for years and cannot beat me, who's only been practicing for a few weeks, they do not deserve to be on the team. And to have an opportunity to go and become the best pusher for the U.S., I think was my biggest accomplishment. And then I think dancing in the Fort Worth Ballet. Uh, you know, ballet is probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And you know, and people always say, why you never set a Heisman Trophy? Well, I never set a Heisman Trophy because, uh, you know, as a freshman, they said Herschel should have won the Heisman Trophy. As a sophomore, they said Herschel should have won the Heisman Trophy. As a junior, Herschel wins the Heisman Trophy. And I said Herschel in third person because that's what people say about me all the time. But uh, I feel my junior year, did I win the Heisman Trophy or did, did they give it to me because they say he should have won it this year, he should have won it that year, so let's give it to him now, even though I had a good year. So I never said I had some trophy, and people get upset about me about it, but uh, I'd say I must tell the truth. My mother's gonna get upset with me. I never read an article about myself. Since I've been growing up, I never read anything about myself. I'm not a big sports page reader. I don't read sports pages. One reason why is I don't read about myself because I know myself better than the person that's writing the article. I don't read a lot of the sports because I think people sometimes either build it up or you have this guy that hates sports who's going to write bad about it, so I figured I'm not going to read it because I'm not going to let him uh, put an idea into my head. And I think reporters do not realize that they do that. And, you know, they would continue to say we're giving the news, but you put an idea in someone's head. They take an athlete, they build this athlete up, the kids look up to him, they're making the best thing in the world, and this athlete make one mistake. They write bad about him, saying he's a bum, he's this, he's that. Then on the next day, they build him back up again. So a kid may get that idea and say, hey, I can do that. I can be great, I can be great, and all of a sudden I can make a mistake, and I'm going to go down, and I'm coming right back up. And I say, you know, uh, not speaking of uh, what the movie credits, but it's so funny because uh, they criticize so many movies, but yet a lot of the movies they criticize I like. So I said, what is so strange about it is who said that they're the people who decide to move it? And I, that's the way I look at life. You know, I was a person that was always by myself a lot. I always wrote, you know, and I think getting married gave me a uh, best friend. You know, and it gave me a person that, you know, she may not know all Herschel, but she knows me better than anyone else. You know, she's like, you always say you want to marry someone like your mother. And I'm going to say my wife's like my mother, but, you know, my mother knows me. But then my mother says she don't know me. Whereas my wife says she knows me, and then she says she don't. But it gave me a best friend, you know, someone that, you know, I can laugh and, you know, I can act silly sometimes. And they're not going to judge me on that act. You know, I think people sometimes judge you, you know, but you have a right to be uh, free for a little bit. You have a right just to uh, laugh and, you know, just just to act up, as long as it's not in a, in a bad way. I, I think we, as an adult, we all are role models. If a little kid see an adult doing something, he's thinking it's okay. 
And for myself, I don't feel responsibility is reason wise. I think no matter what, I'm gonna do the very best I can I can do. I'm gonna be the very best I can be. Cause I think if a kid can see me doing that, he's gonna want to be the best he can be. But that's the way I am. I think we all should be like that. I, and it's so strange because I say a role model. What is that? Something to inspire you to do better. But I think if we all do better, it'll make this world better. So I don't think it's a responsibility because I think if I didn't do that, I'm cheating myself. And if I can be the best I can be, I'm helping someone else out anyway. And great job, as always, by Greg Hangler bringing us this story. And thanks to the Academy of Achievement. There's so many good stories there. Go to achievement.org. Achievement.org. And by the way, just as a recap, You know, him talking about his mother and father who went to work and never complained about it. They loved God and threw his love on me. My mother and father were my role models. Then he talked about that one race where he didn't try and he lied. And he said, from now on, I'm going to give it everything I got. I don't care what it is. I'll never give up. And then last, just his emphasis on God. Success is being happy and God has helped me to love myself. And I love God. And of course, last, being accountable. And accountable to yourself. There's a tendency, he said, to tell others what to do or how to act. And boy, there's a lot of that going around these days. Herschel Walker's story, here on Our American Story. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for the podcast.